What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the second installment of Wise Guys Hideaway. I'm your host, Ian Barr, and tonight we're going to be talking about Al Capone and the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Uh, but before we do that, I'm going to give a couple quick shout-outs here. Shout-out to Our Thing Clothing Apparel, uh, the best streetwear, hats, t-shirts, sweaters, you know, letterman jackets, you know, you name it, they got it. Pop on over to Facebook or Twitter and get you some today. Uh, Shout-out to all the guys in the groups, Rob Below Jr., you know, Boston Rob, uh, Pauly G, James Ramirez, you know, Ron Roach, you know, all you guys, uh, big thanks to all you. Uh, big shout-out to Scott M. Bernstein and the original Gangster Podcast. And uh, I'm glad it was a, a leap year, guys, because I wanted to get this thing out in February, but the Sonny Francis thing happened, and uh, it just seemed like I, I had to get I had to get that done first. So uh, here we go. Let's get into it. Alfonso Gabriel Capone, born January 17th, 1899, uh, in New York City, grew up in Brooklyn, and from a very young age, I mean, Al was just destined to be destined to be a gangster. I mean, he uh, he joined the Five Points Gang at a very young age. Some uh, notable figures in that would be, you know, guys like Meyer Lansky, Lucky Luciano. So, you know, Capone was really, you know, a street guy from the time he could walk and talk. You know, the hustle never stopped with Al. Uh, his first employer and uh, actually a longtime friend of his, Frankie Yale, uh, would play a pivotal part in Capone's life. Uh, I mean, as we go through this, you'll see. But uh, young Al ended up, you know, starting a family uh, pretty young, as you know, as a lot of these guys did. He uh, he would marry his wife Josephine uh, on December eighteenth, nineteen thirty, or December <laughs> December thirtieth, nineteen eighteen. Excuse me. And, uh, you know, because of the, his growing family and uh, some of the problems he was having in New York, in 1919, Capone heads to Chicago to work under uh, an infamous and very notable crime figure, Johnny Torrio, better known as the Fox. I mean, this guy was was one of them old-timey, you know, mentor-type gangsters, you know, very, very quiet, very reserved, but, I mean, he knew the ropes. And he worked for an old-time Don by the name of James Big Jim Calissimo, who was, you know, a, a, a hardcore, you know, off the boat type of guy. You know, he spoke, uh, he spoke better Italian than he did English. You know, he was very, uh, very gluttonous, a real, a real old school Sicilian Don. And, uh, in 1920, the United States would, uh, pass a law into effect that would essentially make organized crime, the Prohibition Act, uh, you know, the manufacturing and sale of alcohol becoming illegal, really is what boosted these guys into what we know them as today and what they were during, you know, the 40s, 50s, and 60s, just a powerhouse. And uh, Prohibition prohibition single-handedly seemed to that. Now, when Prohibition happened, Torrio and Capone, like any, you know, half-minded gangster, uh, wanted to get involved. I mean, they had they had the brothels, they had gambling rackets and, you know, bookmaking operations, you know, but the, the booze, the booze is where the money was at. But uh, Big Jim... Being as old timey as he was, didn't want Torrio gaining too much more, you know, power. He didn't want to be overthrown or anybody threaten his reign at the top. You know, he was living very comfortably. He was very happy with himself and where he was. So he told him no. He says no. You know, you guys don't need it. You're making plenty of money. But Torrio and Capone felt differently. So on May 11th, 1920, they enlisted the help of Capone's old buddy Frankie Yale to gun down Big Jim Calisimonas in his own restaurant uh, while well, he there, was there alone, kind of just enjoying the ambiance of himself, I suppose. Uh, and so that would be the end of Big Jim and the the beginning of the Torrio and Capone reign. 
Now, they, I mean, they instantly began, you know, bootlegging like nobody's business. And another group from the North Side run by Dino Banyan called the North Side Gang of kind of decided that, you know, you guys aren't going to take the whole pie. You know what I mean? We're going to, we're going to get our, our share of this action. And so they began battling for turf and, you know, the, I mean, the battles back then, guys, this is true gangland massacres. I mean, people just getting shot on the streets, broad daylight, blowing up storefronts. I mean, the, all those things you see in those old, old gangster movies. I mean, they were happening. They really were. And, uh, Torrio decided that he needed to take out this Dino Banyan, you know, this, this Irish son of a bitch who just wouldn't stop, just wouldn't stop coming after Torrio Capone and their turf. And so on November 10th, 1924, uh, Dino Banyan's at his flower shop, uh, actually, because he was a florist and he's, you know, getting flowers prepared for another gangster's funeral, which was actually the decoy to the hit that would take place. Uh, three gunmen walk in, that being Frankie Yale, uh, John Scalisi, and Albert Anaslami, and uh, one of them would hold out their hand to go to shake Dino Banyan's hand, and when he cupped their hand, the individual squeezed, and the other two pumped them full of rounds, uh, leaving them dead on the floor. Uh, now after this, uh, Jaime Weiss, a Polish gangster actually, takes control of the Northside gang, and he and Dino Banyan had been very close friends, and he took this very, very personally. And so he began battling Capone and Torrio like nobody's business. I mean, just sending just sending barrages of, you know, bullets their way. So Torrio attempts to call a truce. You know, Torrio, he's getting older. He, he's, you know, he's happy with the money they're making and how him and Al are doing in Chicago. He just wants this to be done. But Jaime Weiss says, fuck that. You know, Dino Banyan was, was my boy, and you're going to get what you have coming. And uh, in 1925, uh, a mere 12 days apart, actually, Capone would be first, Torrio second. But they would both be ambushed. Um, now Capone would, would merely escape, you know, unscathed. He, he barely got by. Torrio was not so lucky. He caught a couple rounds. And so in January of 1925, Torrio decides, you know what? You know, I, I've, I've done good. I got plenty of money in the bank. You know, it's time to retire. And he, he gives control of Chicago's underworld to a, a mere, a mere 26 year old Al Capone who sets up shop in Cicero, Illinois and just sort of begins, you know, running amok, really, if you will. I mean, he he love he loves the high life. He loves the nightlife. You know, prostitutes and cocaine and the drinking and you know the entertainment world. And and this is when he'll be dubbed uh, by his nickname Snorky, which I'm sure he embraced far more than his earlier nickname, which was Scarface Al, because back in his Brooklyn days, in an altercation in the streets. Uh, he was sliced with a knife, which left a big scar across his left cheek. And for years, he, his nickname was Scarface Al. And I can't assume anybody would like that. You know, that's like kind of, you know, calling somebody fucking Frankenstein or something. But so when he when he got crowned the nickname Snorky, I'm, I'm sure he just relished in it. Now, the relish wouldn't come long because Jaime Weiss was still, just because Torrio's gone doesn't mean he's forgotten about Capone. And on September 20th, 1926, uh, Capone's sitting at the Hawthorne Inn, enjoying a nice, you know, lunch, nice late lunch. And uh, he's just ambushed, but it's it's so odd setup because the first car pulls up and begins firing, you know, umpteen rounds from a Thompson submachine gun. So everybody hits the deck. But as soon as the first car pulls off, they notice that nothing's really there's nothing really the matter. Well, it was it was blanks. They fire an entire you know uh, drum of blanks, and then two cars pull up after the first car and begin you know firing the real rounds. And I, I do believe they fired over a thousand rounds. 
Nobody was killed, thank God, uh, it, but a bartender was injured. Capone, obviously, you know, picked up the tab, as you would, and decided, you know, enough's a fuck enough. So on October 11, 1926, Jaime Weiss is gunned down, uh, ironically, outside of Dean O'Banion's old flower shop. And so it'll be at this point that George Bugs Moran takes control of the Northside gang, and much as Jaime Weiss did to, you know, honor Dean O'Banion, uh, Bugs you know, battles it out with Capone for years to come. I mean, just endless battles in the streets, leaving well over 300, you know, low-level gangsters, mid-level gangsters, whatever gangsters, dead in the streets. Um, eventually, Capone will have enough of this, and he sets out for, for the big hurrah. He wants to take out Bugs Moran. So on February 14, 1929, in the Lincoln Park area on Chicago's north side, um, at around 10.30 a.m. at 2122 North Clark Street, uh, seven of the Northside gang members and associates are gunned down in an onslaught like the streets have never seen. Uh, Peter and Frank Gusenberg, who were uh, Bugs Moran's key enforcers, uh, Albert Kalchek, uh, Moran's brother-in-law and uh, better known as James Clark, uh, Adam Heyer, the gang's bookkeeper and, you know, sort of numbers guy. Reinhardt H. Schwimmer, uh, uh, oh, an ex-physician and a gambler who's sort of a, you know, low-level associate to the gang. Um, Albert Weinshank, who was an associate to the gang, was actually the one who was mistaken for Moran and uh, would actually be the reason the the four gunmen entered soon after he did. And then uh, a, a, just a low-level mechanic, was also gunned down in the onslaught. Um, after Albert Weinshank enters the uh, garage, the parking garage on North Clark Street, uh, four gunmen um, who were never convicted but are alleged to have been Fred Killer Burke, Tony Joe Batters Arcado, who would be the future boss of Chicago and would be re-nicknamed the, the Big Tuna. Uh, we'll get into him down the road. He's a, he's a whole episode himself. Uh, Gus Winkler and George Zingler would enter the garage soon after and two were dressed as cops and two were dressed in regular street clothes so when they lined the men up against the wall nobody really thought nothing of it you know this this the shakedown period for these guys so they're they're sort of used to this but soon after they lined them up against the wall they just opened fire with shotguns thompsons and pistols and uh six out of seven would die instantly uh frank gusenberg would actually live to to make it to the hospital when, when he was being uh, interviewed by police and they asked, uh, who shot you? He responded, and I quote, no one shot me. Uh, soon after, he would succumb to his injuries and he would die. <clears throat> now, the Moran and Capone War would uh, simmer after that, but it would still, it would still be there. Uh, but soon after, uh, in 1930, 31, Capone becomes public enemy number one, and they, the feds just will stop at nothing to take him down. And eventually, the IRS pulls the oldest trick in the book, and on October 1931... Capone's convicted on tax evasion, and he's uh, given a lengthy sentence and some hefty fines. Now, he begins serving his time in Atlanta Penitentiary, where a prison doctor gives him a look over and diagnoses him with advanced syphilis and gonorrhea. Um, now, he slowly begins to deteriorate from these diseases, and eventually he's transferred to Alcatraz, where he's really starting to deteriorate. But during this time in Alcatraz, he actually did do a little good. He lobbied for milk uh, bottles to have expiration dates on them because he felt, and I quote, that pregnant women shouldn't have to worry about if their milk's sour or not. Now, for all the bad he did, 
that's that's a pretty good thing to lobby behind. You know what I mean? I mean, you're locked up anyway. He says, fuck the government. They want to save some money just by not telling people when their milk's expired. Fuck them. I'm going to get them. I mean, he didn't only do that, you guys. I mean, when he was on the streets, despite all the bad he was doing, he, he spent roughly $250,000. Uh, to set up soup kitchens, you know, during those hard times in Chicago. And I mean, he did what he could for the community while still plaguing the community at the same time. And I mean, that's, I mean, that's pretty much every gangster ever known. So, but without him, I wonder how long it would have taken to have expiration uh, dates on milk bottles. It, that really is that one. That one surprised me when I learned that one, that one blew my mind. Uh, Capone's mental state just keeps deteriorating and begins having, you know, breathing problems, heart problems, and he, you know, he's residing in his home in Florida, and he's sort of just reverting back into a childlike state. There's actually a picture of him that's, I mean, really, really kind of speaks volume and is actually really sad, but kind of ironic because, you know, he did so much wrong in his life. It's like he sort of had this coming, but he's sitting on the floor in his Florida home. He's got his silk robe on, silk pajamas, big old cigar in his mouth, but he's playing with train cars or blocks. I can't quite remember which, but... He looks like, you know, and, he, and he's grinning, he's got a big old smile on his face, and it looks like that of, like, a child, just a big child, you know. And eventually, on January 25th, 1945, Capone would die due to heart failure in a Miami hospital uh, from complications from his STDs. Now, just because the man dies doesn't mean the, the legend doesn't live on. I mean, Capone's legacy is iconic. Even if you don't know anything about the mafia, you know who Capone is, and you probably at least know the St. Valentine's Day massacre just as a title, just that people were killed in St. Valentine's, on on Valentine's Day in Chicago. Um, and other than that, I mean, he just goes down in history. It's probably one of the most famous mugshots ever. Just the, the whole nine. I mean, if, if they would even open a museum about him in Chicago called Capone's, where a stage actor would portray Capone every night. I mean, he's been portrayed by many people, including Robert De Niro and uh, my personal favorite. I like the way Stephen Graham portrayed him in a boardwalk empires and for all the factual inaccuracies boardwalk empires has i really did appreciate what stephen graham did as al capone um well that that's all i got for you tonight guys thanks again for joining me here at wise guys hideaway and like <laughs> like i always say if no one sees it there is no crime have a good night everybody